This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org donate. Thanks for your support. Good morning. This is case number 51 from Transmission of the Light, Ru Jing. Ru Jing studied with Master Zijian. Zijian asked him, How do you purify that which has never been defiled? After more than a year, Ru Jing was suddenly awakened. He said to his teacher, I have hit upon that which is undefiled. The verse to this koan. The breeze of the way blowing far is harder than diamond. The whole earth is supported by it. The Transmission of the Light is a book of koans that traces uh, the transmission, the enlightenment of um, starting with Shakyamuni Buddha uh, through um, I think it ends with, I don't think it ends with Dogen, but the teacher after him. It was written by Kazan, who's a couple of generations after Dogen, so we're talking about the 1200s. Um, and each of the koans um, bring forth the awakening of the Dharma ancestor. Uh, we chanted that lineage, which continues to this day. So I've received transmission from Shugen Roshi, as, as we say, Sensei and Hojin Sensei. Shugen Roshi received it from Daido Roshi, who received it from Aizumi Roshi, and so on. And Zen claims um, to have that mind-to-mind transmission go back to the time of the Buddha. Now, historically, that issue may be in doubt there. It's, uh, it's not always clear, the, the history of just what exactly happened when. Um, but that's the claim. And in fact, um, at least within the Mountains and Rivers Order and other orders as well, uh, that mind-to-mind transmission is very much alive and well. And it is mind-to-mind. It's absolutely mind-to-mind. It's not doesn't have anything to do with knowledge. doesn't have anything to do with uh, ultimately personality, other than the person, personality has to be suitable and compassionate enough to be a teacher. It has to do with insight, with realization. Um, and so th- this is the story of Rujing, who, uh, was the, who eventually transmitted to Master Dogen. And our order is based on the Mountains and Rivers Order, which is a fascicle, a chapter from uh, Dogen's writings in the Shobo Genzo. Um, so there's a lot of relationship built into this. And these koans are incredibly subtle. Um, they t- the, you study them at the very end of your training with your teacher. And because it's a mind-to-mind transmission... Uh, there's no explanation that a student can offer when he, he or she sees into this koan. It's 
somehow communicated to the teacher, and the teacher is clear that you've seen what that teacher saw when the teacher said, I have hit upon that which is undefiled. Um, And so, at least as a relatively new teacher, I don't often give shows on these kinds of koans because they're not greatly accessible. Um, And yet, in this case, I felt it was uh, perfect. Our Buddha nature is pure and undefiled. Nothing can stain it. And yet, it's not clear to us. It seems to be a mystery. And yet, nothing is hidden. Other than what we hide from ourselves. And so our true nature shines forth, and yet we hide it unwittingly and are hidden from it. And yet the the fundamental realization, the realization of the Buddha and what has been transmitted from generation to generation uh, to the present time is that from the beginning we are all Buddhas. That we are all whole and complete. And so someone who has realized that sees all beings as whole and complete, whether they themselves have realized it or not, sees all beings as Buddhas. And this is crucial in terms of the student working with their teacher because the teacher sees before them a Buddha. And until the teacher and the Buddha are of one mind, there's plenty more work to do. So... Master Dogen, who received the transmission from Rujing, who this koan is about, had a degree of clarity. He was in Japan, and he practiced with several teachers, Rinzai teachers, koan study. And he had finished his koan study, and yet he wasn't satisfied. And his inherent life koan... Uh, was simply that if we are all originally Buddhas, all originally have Buddha nature, why do we have to practice and realize it? It's there. And that was a life koan for him. And it wasn't casual. So he decided to go to China because that's where Zen and Buddhism was. It was relatively new to Japan. And he went with his then teacher, Mio Zen, And we know a fair bit of detail about some aspects of that trip because he kept a diary, which is available to us. And there are books in English that you can read about that, that trip. So he left for Japan, from Japan on the 22nd of February, 1223. And that journey was considered a very, very perilous journey at the time. He was accompanied by Miyozan and two other monastics. And on his arrival, Dogen decided to stay on the boat for a while to prepare for his journey. He was about to travel all over China. I've traveled all over China in modern times, so you can imagine what that was 
1223 to, to undertake a pilgrimage like that. Even when I did it in the 1980s, it was pretty exciting. Um, so as his diary notes, while he was spending several days preparing for his journey, an old monk came on board to buy Japanese mushrooms. And the monk was elderly, older than 70, and was the Tenzo, the cook, in a temple in the mountain near Shanghai. And Tenzo is a, um, a very prominent position in a monastery, um, responsible for the food and a lot more related to the kitchen. Um, and usually, historically, very, very senior people, uh, equivalent to Roshis, equivalent to teachers, would be Tenzos. Um, so Dogen notes that his face reflected a great depth, and Dogen connected and felt intrigued by him. And he invited him to stay the night on the boat, hoping to speak with him. And the monk monastic replied that he had to return to the temple that afternoon because he had to cook. Um, he, he, Dogen said, in a great monastery like yours, there must be other monastics who can prepare the food. And the monastic replied, I'm old, replied the, replied the Tenzo. It is the practice of my old age. How can I leave to others that which I must do myself? Venerable monk, said Dogen, why must an old man like you do this exhausting work instead of reading the sutras, studying the sutras? The monk burst into laughter. And he said, young friend from overseas, you seem to know little of the meaning of the practice and teachings of Buddhism. Now remember, Dogen was a very experienced practitioner, had done the whole koan curriculum, was raised from an early age, I think around nine, within a Buddhist context. Uh, He knew everything about Buddhism, except what was most essential, of course. (laughs) So the old monastic invited him to visit the temple of his master, and he waved goodbye. So what do you think the old monastic was pointing to in this statement? Young monk from overseas. Young New Yorker from wherever you came from. (laughs) You seem to know little of the meaning of the practice and teaching of Buddhism. Dogen had suggested that he not do the heavy work and study sutras. So that question is, is worth considering. What is the meaning and practice and teachings of Buddhism? So Dogen was deeply impressed by this meeting. And one day, in, as we know in 1225, we even know the day, he went to the temple at Niojo, considered it at the time to be a very, very important temple, uh, to to meet with the teacher and to meet with the, the Tenzo. And during one conversation, he asked the Tenzo, what is the use of writing? How should we read the sutras? 
And the old monastic replied, one, two, three, four, five. Dogen asked again, how should we study the way, true Buddhism? The monastic replied, nowhere is the way not true. Nowhere. Yesterday during the Zazenke, I gave a talk on the koan, ordinary mind is the way. Which is another way of saying, nowhere is the way not true. For Dogen, this elderly monastic incarnated true Buddhism, true realization. He understood what practice and awakening are about. We may think that practice and awakening are about awakening. And it's not that that's wrong. But it doesn't go far enough. After the Buddha's awakening, he taught in the fourth noble truth eight ways to awaken. The Eightfold Noble Path. We use the Eight Gates of Zen as our training manual, both the book and the actual Eight Gates. And the first of them is Zazen. And we certainly do Zazen every morning and every evening here. It's the cornerstone of training. Zazen. Za means sitting, and Zen means meditation, sitting meditation. And in the beginning, Zazen is is a study in concentration. Usually we count the breath, follow the breath, until we learn to work with the mind in such a way that we can stay with the inquiry. Now, you may think that following the breath is not an inquiry, but if there's not an energy, a desire to ask some question about who you are and what you're doing in this life, beneath that practice of counting or following the breath, then you're doing simple meditation. Your life will improve, you'll get better, you'll feel better. Thank you very much. That's not what's... Zen is about. It's not divorced from that, but it's not what Zen is about. Zen is about something a little larger. So Zazen itself is a powerful tool of self-inquiry. And it has no boundary. That's what you encounter in your own mind as you do Zazen. As you go deeper and your concentration becomes clearer, There is no boundary, which is your mind, which, as it turns out, is indistinguishable from all of reality. Now, that may sound not understandable or understandable in a way that seems theoretical, but that is actually the way it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in reading sophisticated lay articles on physics and following how now there's a pretty strong current in the study of physics 
it's unescapable because I can't figure out any other way to look at the universe through science except through interaction with our mind. They can't get around that. It's a stopping point. Buddhism has known that since the time of the Buddha. The three worlds are nothing but mind. Everything you experience is through your mind. There's nothing outside your mind. Do you know that? Do you appreciate that? Life and death is in your mind. So it's through Zazen that we wake up and realize the unity of ourself with this whole phenomenal universe. One thing manifesting as you or as anything else that you point to. It's all you or it's all anything, any other particular thing. Nothing's left out. So the other eight gates, which I'm not going to spend time with except one, is Buddha study, sutra study, which Dogen asked about, or other academic study, liturgy, which is crucial, and which we did this morning. It makes, as we say, visible the invisible. And when your heart is dying, it's the only thing that will help. Right action, the study and practice of the moral and ethical teachings, and what they're based in, selflessness, no self. I don't mean the self being less selfish. I mean insight into selflessness. There is no self. Creative practice, art practice, creativity, and how crucial that is to awakening because nobody can tell you how to awaken. We awaken through our body. We sit zazen with our body. We live through our body. So body practice, not as exercise, but as an investigation of who we are. Work practice, because it's how we spend a great deal of our life. And finally, study with a teacher. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. This is an auspicious day, as you saw. Two people entered today as students. They went through the five gates of entry. We don't make it easy to to enter as a student here. It's very easy to come here. The door is wide open. So as long as you're not creating a disturbance and stopping other people from practice, you're welcome. And um, we'll support you, and, and help you in practice. But we limit access to the teachers. And in this temple, as most of you know, there, there are two primary teachers, Hojin Sensei and myself. There are two other teachers in the Mountains or Rivers Order as well, Suisei Sensei and Shugen Roshi. All of them come here at times. 
but mainly it's Hojin Sensei and myself. So it's a very formal process to become a student because there has to be a path where the student learns how to be a student, how to ask a question. And that question has to be a real spiritual question for them. And what the student is learning and what they're taking up is how to cultivate honesty, true honesty, both internally and in relationship. How to cultivate authenticity. How to cultivate openness. Because all of us shut down when we hurt. We protect ourselves. So how do you cultivate that? How do you work with that in a way that encourages your awakening? As opposed to building a wall, or fleeing, or repressing. They cultivate being patient, being realistic about the path. There's nothing magical about the path. Certainly is mystical, but it's not magical. There is cause and effect. And at the same time, while you're being realistic, to challenge oneself to be present with oneself and to understand as you sit Zazen and clarify where your barriers are, to work with them in an intelligent and constructive way with the help of the teacher, with the help of the Sangha. To understand that each of us is responsible for our own practice. Everybody in this room made a decision to be here today. You made that decision. So that's a relatively small decision on a given day in your life. But everyone who chooses to become a student in relationship with teacher and teachers and sangha, that's a very different level of making a decision. To cultivate, as a student, a profound trust and deep faith in every aspect of reality and to raise the student mind the mind of bodhicitta, the desire to awaken, which has to be recultivated. It's just not something that you latch on to once and think, I want that, whatever that is to you. It needs to be connected. And so you need to sit. You need to practice with the sangha. You need to practice with your teacher. It has to be completely integrated into your life at some point to be open to the teacher's direction. Now, Zen, the teacher's not a guru. The teacher will almost never, short of ultimately destructive behavior, tell the student what to do. That would be really taking away the student's power. But there's direction given, suggestions. and to become more and more of your own guide. So in a way, the teacher's job is to remove the influence of the teacher from the student. Isn't that interesting? So that the student, who is a Buddha, can begin to realize that for themselves. So that there's not a dependency, ultimately. There's a time and a place for that. And so it comes together formally in Daisan and Doksan, in talks, in informal teachings, 
in meetings and work practice, in seeing somebody on the street, in um, working in the kitchen and washing dishes. The teacher is never not teaching in that respect. And there's also a real karmic bond between the teacher and the student, which is not a friendship bond. The teacher's job is singular. Help the student awaken. That's it. Not about friendship. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not about that. So there has to be space between the teacher and the student in order to help the student. And believe me, teachers are single-minded about that, at least within this order. And so, so to respect the karmic bond, which will always be there. In my life, I've had three main teachers in my life. Two of them are dead. All three of them are vividly alive in me, still teaching me. One is Roshi Kapla, who was my first teacher. One is Daito Roshi. So both of them are gone. And the third is Shugen Roshi. They're still teaching me. I watched Shugen Roshi go up to the cemetery at the monastery and have a talk with Daito Roshi. Why is he doing that? <laughs> He's opening himself up to the advice of his teacher in that circumstance, which is in him, but needs a little encouragement in that moment. Nobody here wants the job of being an abbot of the monastery. Trust me on this. And there are other things. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but to not want something from the teacher that is outside Dharma practice. Fundamentally, the teacher has nothing to give. I mean, they're a guide, but they don't have anything to give you because you've already got everything. And it's just encouraging you and supporting you and helping you to bring it out. And at certain key times, to go deep within yourself, as this koan illustrates. Now, the teacher has a responsibility as well to be generous to create genuine open ground for the student to both be safe in and awaken, for the teacher to be clear on their own weaknesses. Every teacher is a human being, a person, a personality, and to be a student of the Dharma. So the most important thing for me as a, as a would-be teacher is my own practice, is to be a student of the Dharma. And as I frequently point out, isn't it interesting that the people who sit the most in the zendo are the teachers? Why is that? One would think it would be the opposite, right? They're the most realized. To understand that students bring their own unique life and situations to the Dharma, and the teacher may not have encountered that before. So the teacher has to be wide open to that. To receive what the student offers with love and kindness and generosity, which is also a teaching for the teacher. 
to place encouragement of the student's practice and realization at the heart of everything. So even when the student loses sight of that, the teacher does not lose sight of that, to encourage and support the student in their awakening. To recognize every student as being equal in potential and deserving of the Dharma. Nobody gets rejected or measured. It's hard for people to believe, but it's true. And yet, to be clear about the student's real and relative capacity. Each person has a different capacity. Also, each person has a different capacity at a different time. I remember many years ago when I was uh, kind of an assistant teacher in Denver, there was a, a student, I've mentioned this before, who came into practice. He was 70, in his 70s, he had severe crippling rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it, it was what we call a burnt-out rheumatoid. It had ended, but it left him devastated in terms of his physicality. And he was determined to sit on the floor, to sit cross-legged. And... Um, the teacher who was working with him at the time, uh, when he got some stability in his practice, wouldn't assign a moo because he's too old, he's broken down, da-da-da-da. So he signed him a different practice. And then someplace along the line, and I'm not bragging about this, I'm just, I don't know how to tell the story without, another teacher <laughs> came along <laughs> And I saw in him a genuine desire to know that he knew that he knew. And I assigned him Mu, which takes enormous energy and enormous determination. And he is this 70-year-old girl, man, barely can walk through the hall. And he saw it. He saw it. And I never forgot that. That he awoke. Every student being equal in potential and being deserving of the Dharma. And yet, to be clear of each student's real and relative capacity, at that time, that's my point, at that time, because it changes. The real is unlimited. The relative is specific to the circumstances at that time. Those circumstances change. To teach in level, in accord with level of permission. Not just what they say, but what they mean in terms of permission. Now really, to sum up what it means to be a student of the Mountains and Rivers Order, is that you are saying, yes, I am giving you permission to help teach me to awaken. You've got it. That's what you're saying. You're saying that both to the teacher that's before you, You're saying that to the teachers in the order. You're saying that to the Sangha. And you're saying it to yourself. You're restating in a clear and unambiguous way. When I put this robe on, I am giving you permission. Without that permission, if the teacher goes where there is not permission, that's abusive. It will seem abusive, and it is abusive in a certain way. You don't have permission. And so it matters if someone is a true student or not, no matter what robe they're wearing or not wearing. So students can enter as students 
but actually not ask for the teachings, or ask for the teachings but not give permission. And the first thing that happens when a student comes into Shokan, the first interview with, with a student, is they do nine bows and ask for the teachings. So that's the form. What's the heart? And you can give permission, not as a student, but it's not the same thing because you haven't gone through the process. It's not trustworthy in the same way. You haven't been case-hardened. You may want to awaken, but you, you have not made a commitment to the teacher, to the order. You're showing up, you're here on Sunday, but you haven't made that commitment, that absolute final commitment. And it's interesting, and I'm addressing something very specific, because a couple of times a year we have Sangha meetings. And, you know, the lid is off. Anybody can say anything. The teachers are not present purposely. And so whatever you want to say, it's also a way that acts as a check on both the teachers, the students, anybody else. So there's anything, because what happens in Daisan and Doksan is confidential. So both the student and the teacher ask not to speak of that under any circumstances. Well, that's a doorway for possible abuse. And that's happened. And so we have these meetings. And one of the consistent things that are raised by people who are not students is they don't have access to the teachers. You actually do every time you attend a Zazenkai. You can go to -to face-to-face teaching. We have one every month. But aside from that, you don't. Whereas every Sunday and every sitting during the week that a teacher is present, we see the students, including the residents. Well, that's because of commitment. The people who've made the commitment, who've staked themselves in relationship with this order, these teachings, have agreed to practice in this particular way, have oriented their life in such a way that they're going, they're determined to wake up, that that's what the teacher meets. And would it be fair to those students, for someone who comes in three times a year, to have the same access, who's made no commitment, and it doesn't really have the depth of understanding of what it means to practice. They haven't made that journey. We'd like them to, but, you know, really, that's up to them. The teacher needs to have skill in knowing how to challenge the student because we're all self-limiting. We all limit ourselves, and a clear sense of boundary between the sem- themselves and the student. The places the teacher should not go, it's not their business. And the teacher always, almost always, works off what the student brings. So I don't usually ask questions of the student that they're not bringing up themselves. The teacher has an obligation not to work out their own issues in relationship with the student. And the teacher has a fundamental obligation to practice. The teacher has the clarity to not be attached or overly invested in obtaining something from the students. That's a biggie. I want you to awaken, but it's not my problem. It's yours. And so I can't, I can't 
want it more than you want it. <laughs> if I do, that student and that teacher are in trouble. And if I find myself working too hard for it, something's off. And you are abusing the student at that point. It's not fair to the student. So there's an obligation. This is a mind-to-mind transmission. The teacher has the mind-to-mind transmission from the Buddha to the present time. And their obligation is one of infinite compassion to the student, understanding that they are a Buddha. Now, I ask you directly, what do you want? So Master Rujing, after his own awakening, just make sure I'm not missing anything. So this is the teacher of Master Dogen, was a demanding and rigorous person. Once, while seated in Zazen, Dogen's neighbor fell asleep on a zafu. That never happens here. <laughs> Rujing exclaimed in a loud voice, Drop body and mind. And he hit the monk with a sandal. You can imagine those days the zendo flow was dirt. And he caused him to fall from his seat. And I don't know this for a fact, but probably the, the seat was on a tan, what's called a tan, which is a, a platform. I've practiced in Rinzai monasteries, which this is. And so you're, you're just this height. So every monastery where the students are see, seated on tans have their stories of people falling off the tan. Either they fall asleep. In one case, and I know this to be true, I know of a teacher who fell off the tongue and had an awakening, so, which is not an invitation. Uh, so when he said that, on hearing those words, Dogen had a deep awakening. Now, he'd already had kenchos, multiple kenchos. To do the koan curriculum, you can't get through that without awakenings. But this was different. So he stayed another two years with Rujing and returned to Japan after having received the transmission of the Dharma. And he brought uh, um, the Dharma to uh, Japan. And actually, I believe this was Soto because he brought the Soto lineage to Japan. He had already received the Rinzai lineage in Japan in his previous training. So that's incorrect what I said before. So he returned to Japan, taking with him his Zazen, primarily Shikantaza, interestingly enough. Later on, he wrote, having studied only with my master, Rujing, I plainly understood that my eyes are horizontal and my nose vertical. That was his response to the question, what did you bring back from China? (laughs) Is that everyday mind or is that not everyday mind? He said, I return home with empty hands. 
So Ru Jing in this koan started studying Zen when he was 19. And at one point, he has to be in charge of cleaning the latrines. And that was an important job uh, and a messy one. So we're not talking about modern sanitation. We're talking about cleaning the latrines, putting them in buckets, carrying the buckets as, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can fill in the gaps. And that, by the way, still happens in some monasteries in Japan. And every once in a while, Americans go over, and of course, the job they're given is... (laughs) Those Americans will teach them. (laughs) So he asked to be in charge of cleaning the latrines. And his teacher asked him, how can you purify that which has never been defiled? So here's a wonderful example of a teacher outside of formal practice. Someone comes and asks, can I be in charge of cleaning the routine? And the teacher says to him, how can you purify that which has never been defiled? How can you clean that which has never been dirty? Obviously, latrines are filthy. But the teacher is saying, how can you purify that which has never been defiled? What does that mean? Everyone in the room has heard and knows that our Buddha nature is pure and undefiled from the beginning. Hakuin Zinji's chant, from the beginning all beings are Buddha. That's his chant in praise of Zazen. That's the basis of Zazen. Ruzhi knew this as well. Sometimes in beginning instructions it's said that the whole basis of Buddhism is original goodness not original sin. Goodness, purity, wholeness, and the largest sense of you yourself are the entirety of the whole universe. That's the basis of this practice. So we all know this. And clearly knowing this is not sufficient. And Dogen knew it. And That just drove his question, if we are originally already Buddha, why do we have to practice it? Now I'm going back to Rujin. Each of of us has to realize this for ourselves. We have to see it for ourselves. We have to actually practice it for ourselves. One, two, three, four, five. We can read the sutras. We can do whatever we do. We can live our life. We can understand it. But until it's realized... It's not yours. You don't know it in your bones and cells, in your belly button and in your ears. And seeing that, seeing that with a degree of clarity changes everything, although nothing changes. Now, it's not an all or nothing thing. It's not a switch. Occasionally it is when there's a, an enormous awakening, and I can show. But for 99.9% of the practitioners, it's whether they're doing koan or shikantaza, it's a step-by-step procedure, which is not linear in any way. Although I just said step-by-step. It's, it's a step-by-step that is one of Isha's step-by-step staircases. <laughs> I always worry when I say that, do you get the reference? But I think you did. I hope you did. If not, look up Isher's illustration on the 
on the web. So, Rujing sat with this for a year. And he was clearly consumed by it. How do you purify that which has never been defiled? Well, the only way to purify something that's been defiled is to realize that everything is originally pure, right? That's logic. So shit is shit just as it is. There's a koan, which I'll give a talk on in the near future, where someone asks, what is Buddha? And the master replied, a shit stick, which means a shit wiping stick, or probably was a corn, a used corn on the cob in those days, which is what people used often in China in those days. I don't want to see the image in your mind. <laughs> So nothing. So when we say nothing is exempt from the purity, nothing is exempt. It's all just as it is. It's all whole and complete. There's nothing outside you. You don't get to pick and choose. And why do I say that? Because all of us get to pick, try to get to pick and choose what we like within us and what we don't like within us. And therefore, what I like within you and what I don't like within you and the judgments in life that comes out of that creates a lot of suffering. It's all whole and complete. It's all you. And no one's excluded from that. That's where compassion comes from. So Rujing sat with it for a year and was suddenly awakened. And he said to his teacher, I have hit upon that which is undefiled. And it seems such a low-key statement right? Oh, yeah, I've seen it. But that's not what he was saying. He was that that was undefiled. He was that. And in the Dogsan room, that's who was there. And when a student comes in, who is that? It's as clear as a bell. It's not a mystery. And when, the, when you do actually do these koans at the end of your training, almost nothing is said in, in Doksan or Daisan. Because you, how do you communicate that? How do you communicate what, he, what Rujing actually hit on? How do you say it? What words do you say it with? What body position do you put yourself in? There is no body. There is no you putting yourself in that position. You are clear and undefiled. And you radiate that. The verse. The breeze of the way blowing far is harder than diamond. The whole earth is supported by it. The breeze of the way. How far does that reach? Where does it begin? Where does it end? Blowing far, blowing near. How near? It sits where you sit, it walks where you walk, cries where you cry, 
How near is that? It's harder than diamond. There's no way to defile it. It's undefiled. You, undefiled. The whole earth is supported by it. Do you see the two sides? The breeze of the way, limitless. Harder than diamond. Blowing far, reaching everywhere. The whole earth, everything you see, taste, touch, think, everything that is, is that. The whole earth is supported by it. You yourself. Thanks so much for listening. The Monastery's quarterly journal, Mountain Record, has a new home at mountainrecord.org. For over 30 years, Mountain Record has been offering spiritual seekers of all faiths a unique journey through words and images. Each quarterly issue delivers a thought-provoking array of classic teachings, contemporary wisdom, stunning photographs, and news from the Mountains and Rivers Order. For more information, to subscribe, or to read our open-access articles, visit mountainrecord.org.